0: Maureen Milliken and this is Rebecca Milliken and this is Crime and Stuff, the podcast that you, you is would, on schedule to be out two weeks after the last one. Just, I hope so, just like we promised. Our many, many fans. We do have fans. So. In fact, I want to thank Jill Ingraham of Albuquerque because she she donated, and I don't think I mentioned her. Previously. Oh, thank you, Jill. I can't even remember if I sent her. Let us know if we did. I, I did. I sent her a message. <laughs> if we, I sent her, been, her stuff. It's been a very hectic. Was very hectic. Yes, the last time. But we appreciate weeks. our donors, and it helps. It helps something. Well, it helps pay for the studio. Yes. It's Think Tank co-working in Yarmouth, Maine. Yeah. Which isn't really a studio, but we're, we we've driven everybody out, thing. and we're in the kitchen and using it as one. Yeah. And Yeah. With Interstate two ninety five roaring yeah. by our backs of our heads. And for our stat service blueberry, which I don't think I've yes, mentioned in a blueberry while. blueberry hosting is a, service. Yes, and they're they're
1: really fun. And now they've got you know when they have the geography, they also have Canada now, yeah. and they show all the provinces. Who listens to us? We like looking to see Britain. Well, they have England. They don't show a map for England. I don't know why, but they do for Canada and
0: Brazil. Where they show parts of it is what you're saying. I mean, it's on the map, on the world map, but they have broken down by right. Yeah, right. They don't, they don't, have, don't have the maps. broken up. But maps. if you're interested in for your own podcasting stuff and using Blueberry, if you click on it through the one on our site ostensibly we would get i don't know some pennies oh, i'm not sure what we get since i don't think it's, it's ever kind been. of
1: vague about it. it's that. very vague
0: and who knows maybe with Maine's laws the same one that keeps us from benefiting from amazon and other things or getting my acx royalties for my audiobooks would maybe keep us who knows thanks page
1: even though you don't blame him I do anyway so anyways you, you did have... you say even though you don't like him I do <laughs> i said even though i bl- you
0: told me not to I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, we don't have any updates or anything, right? I don't think so. So today- we, I
1: probably have some I should be doing, but I haven't. I'm, I know. I apologize. There's just so much. We'll put them on
0: our page. Yeah, when I get to that. Yes. I'm, this is an exciting one. And one reason is it's a story that's been going on for 28 years, and I followed it for all of those years. And I was looking for my original Boston Globe from when it happened that I had saved. I know I saved and I thought it was in my 9-11 box with all my newspapers from that and like Obama's inauguration and stuff, but it's not there. And since this predates that, it might be somewhere else, but I know I used to have it. She's a hoarder, people. Well, I like keeping newspapers. It may be in my this. box. It may be in my box of newspapers with and all my flippings from stuff that I think would be good in mystery novels. But in any case, not to keep you in suspense, yeah. although since you've seen the title of this, you already know what it is. <laughs> but my best source for the story today was the Boston Globe. Of course. And I've been reading their story since it broke, as I said. In fact, they have a whole page on it that I'm not sure if it's in front of their paywall or not, but they have stories on it going back to 1990. So it may be worth subscribing for a month just to read all their stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum heist the biggest art heist in history and it still hasn't been solved most of my source material is from the boston globe i did watch some video stuff and there's a good book stealing rembrandts by anthony amori and tom mashberg that i got some stuff the stuff that i didn't get from the boston globe i will credit Let's get right to it. All right. St. Patrick's Day was winding down in the wee hours of March 18th, 1990. In Boston, that means lots of partying, even though it was a cold, wet night. Four young men, underage, were leaving a party in the Fenway area of Boston a little after midnight. In the Fenway area, I know people think it's just Fenway Park, but it's actually, there's a whole neighborhood, and it borders on Northeastern University and Boston University. And But anyway, they were leaving a party, and they saw two cops sitting in a little red Dodge Hatch back on um, palace street it's a not heavily traveled side street so you, obviously uniform cops so yes okay. uniform cops and especially at that time of night it's a side street that's not heavily traveled and it was an odd sight to them especially since they're sitting in a little red dodge dart but since they were underage and they'd been drinking they figured they just keep on moving along and not Wonder about it too much. In the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, which has a side entrance on Palace Street, guard Rick Abbott was working with a guy he had never worked with before, a young man who usually worked days and was filling in for Abbott's usual partner, an older guy who'd called in sick. Huh. Abbott. St. Patrick's Day Sick. Uh, yeah, yeah. He had a vision problem. He couldn't see coming to work. But anyway, we, who knows? I don't even know the guy's name and here I am crapping on him. Abbott, a musician in a rock band, doesn't fit the typical picture you'd have of a security guard or that you may see if you ever see any reenactments of ah, this on TV. I don't think I'll watch reenactments. A Boston police handout photo of him taking the morning of March 18th shows him wearing rust colored jeans, a striped fanny pack, Mm. front and center on his tummy, short-sleeved security guard uniform shirt unbuttoned over a t-shirt, and ankle cowboy boots. His cowboy hat can be seen in a surveillance video from the previous night, sitting on the security guard desk. He had a classic rock and roll corkscrew curly mullet hairdo that went halfway down his back. Sounds hot. Yeah. Think, um, like, Weird Al Yankovic, I think, had one. Okay. Back, although Weird Al's wasn't as long. Yeah. I think. Okay. Any of you people from the 90s. Yeah. So, not the security guard that you'd picture. Okay. Not an old, like, right. guy with a pop belly. Okay. Right. Or wearing a uni- little fake cop yeah. uniform or anything. Abbott had recently given his two week notice. Mm. He thought the $735 an hour job was boring. He said he was sober that night, something that wasn't always the case, and I'll talk more about mm-hmm. that later. His shift started at midnight, and despite the party atmosphere in Boston, things were quiet. At least relatively. A little before 1 a.m., a fire alarm went off on the museum's third floor, and Abbott's partner went up to check and found every strobe light burning, but no fire. Hmm. Yes. Two weeks before, a guard, not Abbott, saw on his video screen a Palace Street, and that's where the side employee's entrance yeah. is, a young man being assaulted by a couple of men. Then someone banged on the side door asking to be let in. The guard told him he'd call the police instead. But before police arrived, all of the men, including the one who was being insulted, jumped in the car and took off. Hmm. Yeah, strange. Weird. Yes. Abbott, too, sometimes added to the disquiet. A few months before, he'd let some friends in, and they drank wine and wandered the museum, mm-hmm. admiring the art. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: A and I want to interject here that this is a museum that, at that time, too, because I had visited it many times before and after the heist. A lot of art students, a lot of times, they'll go to museums and sketch. You can only use certain kind of pencils there. They don't want you to use certain materials that will. I can't remember now. I never sketched at museums. What the dust they? Put yes, off of because somewhere? of the dust they love. Yeah. So they are very picky. Right. So having people wander around drinking wine is is not and,
0: cool. Although I think they have weddings there and stuff, but in certain yeah. parts, I'm sure. And we'll talk a little more about the museum later. And it's a beautiful museum. It is beautiful. At 1.24 a.m., two cops, the ones the drunk underage boys had seen sitting in the red Dodge, it was later determined, buzzed the side entrance and told Abbott through the intercom that there had been a disturbance on the grounds and they asked to be let in museum protocol and security directors at the museum said this is in the employee manual which sits right there on the security desk was not to even let cops in but if any rang the buzzer to call the police department and ask what was up after hours which is always a smart thing to do yes like they say to do that if you get stopped
1: by somebody yes. you don't think is a cop to call the police and right. ask them
0: in the boston globe years later reported that the nearby museum of fine arts had very recently before this night adopted a security procedure that required night watchmen to get a supervisor's permission before admitting people after hours, and the guards had refused entrance to real Boston police officers who came to the door a few months earlier. Hmm. William McAuliffe, a former Massachusetts state police commander who became security chief at the MFA in 1989, told The Globe... The museum was at its most vulnerable during the night. The entire security rested in the hands of one or two people. And this is no more true than on the wee hours of March 18, 1990 in The Gardener. Abbott later said he wasn't aware of The Gardener's rule not to let cops in. (laughs) They were cops, he said. What was he supposed to do? They had badges and were wearing uniforms, but Abbott probably didn't realize right away their uniforms were not Boston PD issue. He let them in, and they asked where the other guard was and he said he was upstairs doing his rounds, and they told him to get that guard down here. Then one of the cops told Abbott he looked familiar, like a guy they had a warrant for. Abbott knew there was no warrant out for him, but hey, they were cops, so when they asked him to step away from the security desk, he did. He told investigators later that he wanted to avoid being arrested because he had tickets to attend a Grateful Dead concert that day in Hartford. Well, you know. Yeah. Hey. You don't want that to mess... When he stepped away from the desk, which is like a chest-high counter, Mm. it's a counter, not really a desk, he also stepped away from the only alarm the museum Uh. had to the outside world. The button for the panic alarm was behind the security desk. The cops had him put his hands up on the wall, then immediately handcuffed him. Mm. Abbott became suspicious at this point. (laughs) They didn't frisk him or anything. He'd never been arrested, but he said he'd later seen enough TV to know how those things went down. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty accurate. Yep. The other guard came downstairs and they cuffed him too. The guard asked why he they were arresting him. He didn't do anything. You're not being arrested, the one man who did all the talking of the two intruders said. Gentlemen, this is a robbery. Ooh, I bet that guy loves saying that. Yeah. He I said, bet he this did. is so cool when it, they make a movie about this. Right. So they'll have me that. say that. Little did he know how this is one of those stories where a lot of it, even watching documentaries and things made just a couple of years ago, there are a lot of things that people just constantly keep getting wrong and twisted, and that's why I relied on the Boston Globe, where I knew that the information was correct. Yes. They duct taped the arms and legs of both of the guards, as well as wrap tape around their heads. Ah. And... The Boston um, Police Department handout of Abbott, by the way, and if I can um, get one that's big enough, I'll put it on our website. It's familiar to a lot of New Englanders who filed a case It was taken before he was freed. They must have taken it immediately oh, the next morning, guy. and it shows his rock star hair sticking out Aww, from the tape. Yes, yeah, yeah. The motion detectors that show movement throughout the museum and print out in the security office, they don't go outside of the museum, but they in 1990 they had a printout and it also went to the hard drive of the computer, shows that nothing happened for the next 24 minutes. Then it shows, methodically, the two men moving through the first floors of the four-story museum. They went first to the Dutch Room, where they tried to remove Rembrandt's storm on the Sea of Galilee. The piece was equipped with an alarm for when viewers got too close. Rembrandt had included a small self-portrait of himself as one of the sailors on the ship, and people liked to touch it and put their finger on it and point to it. So they had an alarm when people got too close to just that one painting. Paining. Well, the alarm went off. It only rang in that room of the museum. It was loud. It was more, I think, to, to alarm the, the person yeah. than anything else. And also for the person. Right, the guard. or the, during What do the they day. call those people? I don't know. It was the guys who the stand word? there. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> the guy's standing. And one of the thieves found the alarm. Docent. One of the thieves found the alarm and smashed it. Hmm. Apparently it didn't frighten them. They kept going. They cut centuries-old paintings out of their frames with box cutters, smashing glass, breaking the stretchers the artists had used to make the canvas taut, and they broke frames and made a mess. When they apparently got frustrated at the tiny screws holding up a Napoleonic battle banner... They gave up and swiped the relatively non-valuable filial of an eagle that sat atop the pole of the banner. When they left 81 minutes after they'd arrived, they made two trips out to their car with their loot. They'd taken art that today is worth half a billion dollars. Mm. And I will reference at some points the value of the art, but on many of the things I read and watched... In researching this, that's more of a construct for selling it. Yeah. A lot of it yep. doesn't have, mm-hmm. if it were stolen, it would have no value. Yeah. Because you can't resell it, yes. which we'll get into later. Yes, but besides Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was Rembrandt's only seascape, And it's quite a powerful painting. It's a depiction of Jesus in this boat with the apostles and the storm is hitting the boat. and And Rembrandt himself is like trying to hold on to his hat and grab a rope. There's a lot going on in it. It's powerful. Even if you don't know a lot about art, which I know less, obviously, than you do, since it's powerful. They took four other Rembrandts as well. He's, by the way, the most stolen artist. He's a popular guy, yeah. Including a tiny couple square inch self portrait etching, which had been stolen before, by the way. Because it's so little. Right. They also took landscape with an obelisk, which they may have thought was a Rembrandt and had only recently been found out not to be, but it was by one of his students, Govert Flink. Mm. I always think of The Simpsons. They took five works by Edward Degas Mm. and Edward Manet Oil and a Shang Dynasty Chinese bronze beaker from 1200 to 1100 B.C., and the filial, the Eagle filial. Nearly 28 years later, it's still the most costly art heist in history. And 28 years later, the museum still wants its art back. As I said, I'm not going to talk a lot about the value. Our artists and those who appreciate art know value is very relative. For instance, the Vermeer that was taken, did I even mention that? No. I didn't mention the Vermeer. The Vermeer? And I never even mentioned the Vermeer. The Vermeer. I know, I sound like a... But the <laughs> Vermeer that was taken to concert is probably the most valuable taken, and it's considered priceless mm-hmm. because it's one of only 36 Vermeers known to be in existence, all of which are museums and private collections, and so none of which are going to be sold anytime soon. That's why it's hard to assess the value. And we'll talk about
1: this later, but my opinion is, as you were just saying, if they're stolen, they're, they you have no value. Yes, I
0: go into that. That said, the art stolen at the time was valued at $200 million, and now it's valued at $500 million. Wow. Just to throw a number on there to make people understand it. A $10 million reward for information that would result in the art being returned in good condition was due to go back to its original $5 million at the end of 2017. But the museum extended it at the beginning of January. So it's $10 million. Is so solved. we still have a chance. You have to return to it, it in good condition. Good luck with that. The statute of Limitations has run out on the original crime. It would be difficult to prosecute anyone now for the theft, yet no one has come forward. Where the art once was, there are empty frames. Mm. A poignant and even chilling reminder for the past 28 years of what's missing. It is. Over the years, investigators have made some headway, but just enough to be frustrating, including the FBI announcing in 2013 that the case was solved. (laughs) Though it turns out there are some semantics involved in that. They kind of know who did it. It's more of a theory than anything else, and nobody knows where the art is. So, not really solved.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, Solve would be finding it.
0: Right. What has really emerged is an almost laughable comedy of ineptitude, deception, and greed by a rogues gallery of some of the eastern seaboard's best-known criminals and some less famous ones, all tripping all over each other to confuse the story. Many who can answer questions are dead, some mysteriously, others are in prison. And as I said, no one is talking, though a few have coyly offered to, but then pulled back. It's one of New England's most intriguing, expensive, and entertaining mysteries. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born to a wealthy family in New York in 1840 and died in 1924 in Boston. In between, she became one of Boston's most prominent art collectors and philanthropists. That's a word I have trouble saying. (laughs) I always wanted to be a philanthropist. Me too, but you need money too. Yeah, I know. And she had it. She received a 1.75 million inheritance from her father in 1891, which would be worth nearly 48 million today. And she and her husband decided to use it to collect art. Because what else are you going to do with that kind of money? Her first buy was the Vermeer, mm. the concert, at an auction for a price then of $6,000, uh-huh. which today would be 150698 and 15 according to RateCalculator.com.
1: <laughs> and the thing yeah. is, it's hard to talk about how much money she had and
0: what it's worth today because there's so many right, variables. variables. Right. And as I said, that painting's priceless. Yeah. In 1896, she bought... Titian's Europa for $20,000, which would be 555667 in 19 That's pretty cents today. price. It, but it's worth much more, and yeah. it's considered the museum's most well, valuable. And art
1: now is like, forget it.
0: Right, it's worth much more. Yeah. And it's considered the museum's most valuable piece. It was on the third floor, and it was ignored by the thieves hmm. nearly 100 years after Did- she bought it.
1: Do you have, like, the sizes of any of
0: these things, and do you think Not that really made a difference? really detail. Okay. No, no. I don't think the sizes made a difference because the storm on the Sea of Galilee is quite large. Oh, that's true. And yeah. that one Rembrandt is a little bigger yeah. than a postage stamp. So she was considered a little eccentric, the way really rich people are allowed to be. If it's me, it's just crazy or annoying, but mm-hmm. if it's her, it's eccentric. Not that she doesn't sound like a cool person, but, for instance, once in 1912, she attended a Boston Symphony performance, which is a very stuffy, informal affair. It certainly was back then. Wearing a white headband that said, Oh, you Red Sox. <laughs> she was, like, at the time,
1: seven, early 70s, because she was born in 1840.
0: Okay. Right. She would have been 72, I guess. Right? Yeah. <laughs> You're bad at math. I yeah.
1: am. Oh, you Red Sox. Oh, you was Red it, Sox. That, was
0: that, like, a lament? that man one of their world's... That's the year Fenway Park opened... I can't remember if that was one of their World Series years, <laughs> but maybe they we're off to a bad start. You know yeah. how it is. Yeah, but nothing's changed. Yeah. A Boston reporter at the time wrote, quote, There's nothing like her in any city in this country. She is a millionaire bohemian. She is the leader of the smart set, but she often leads where none dare follow. She imitates nobody. Everything she does is novel and original. All right. She was cool. She met her husband, Jack Lowell Gardner, who was the brother of a friend at school, on a trip to Boston. They married, and her husband was what would then be considered Boston royalty. Mm -hmm. Related to the Lowells, his mother was a Peabody. These are not only the names of Massachusetts cities, but families that helped form the economic and social fabric of the city back in the 1800s. They married and lived on Beacon Street in Boston's Back Bay, still one of Boston's toniest neighborhoods. I think Tom Brady has a place there among other people, and the house was a wedding gift from her father. Hmm. They had one son who died of pneumonia before he was two years old, and she then had a miscarriage and was told she couldn't have any more children. She was depressed, so Jack took her to Europe to cheer her up, Mm. and they spent a year mostly in Paris, where she started keeping scrapbooks, extensive scrapbooks, which I think are in the museum, of her travels, and also her interest in art was piqued back then. They later adopted the three sons of Jack's brother who had died young, But this didn't stop the world travels, and the first art they collected came from places like Turkey, Egypt, and the Far East. She and Jack had dreamed of opening a museum to house their art, which their Back Bay townhouse couldn't hold, and he died in 1898 before that dream could be realized. But she said, what the hell, and bought the land in the Back Bay Fens of Boston a few weeks, six weeks or something after he died, to build her museum. Was the Museum of Fine Arts already there? There wasn't much there, and I'm not sure if the MFA was there okay. yet or not, but it was a fairly empty yeah. part of Boston at the time. She helped design the building, which was in the style of, of a Venetian Renaissance palace, mm-hmm. inspired by a palazzo she and her husband had, had visited in Venice, where artists and writers gathered, mm-hmm. which was kind of part of her vision. And she spent a year making sure that the art collection and furnishings were to her liking. She wanted the interior to elicit emotional responses from people rather than it just being a cold collection of works. And I think anyone who's been there, there's gardens. It's just it's a,
1: there's a yeah, it's a courtyard in the middle, right. at, Like an atrium, and it's it's beautiful. It's really they have a gardener whose whole job is yeah. to
0: do that. It's, atrium.
1: It's, I mean, you would think when you walked in, I didn't realize actually that it was built as a, mu- to I didn't, be a museum. I I always thought she had lived thought there. It a house? Yeah, it, it was because it has that feeling when you and go and in. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, a great, mansion, but
0: and it's a great place to visit. It's mm-hmm. very eclectic. Yes, and it's very nice. It opened in 1903, and she had the Boston Symphony Orchestra play at it. And it, just like one of those modern "aren't we cute" weddings that you read about in People magazine, they had champagne and donuts.
1: Ah, yeah. yum!
0: And when she—I know—it makes me hungry. When she <laughs> died, she left an endowment for the museum and asked that its collection not be altered. And that it be, which is one reason why the frames are there. Yeah. And that it be open to the public forever. And by the way, she also left money to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Yes. The Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children, the Animal Rescue League of Boston, and Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Nice. So that tells you what she was like. One little issue the museum had, though as it aged, and which had become alarmingly apparent to a consultant in the 1980s, was that the security was not good. Mm. One glaring issue was there was little outside security contact, all the alarms and panic buttons. Everything inside the museum was internal, except for that one panic button at the security counter. Mm. There were also many false alarms and other issues. Anne Holly, who became museum director in September 1989, and she just retired in 2015, was in the process of upgrading security when the theft happened six months after she took over. (sighs) Her charge had been to make the museum a more vibrant place, and by all accounts she did that, but her entire 26-year tenure there was also overshadowed by the robbery. In recent TV interviews, she recalled how she got a call the morning of the robbery after police discovered the two still tied up and duct-taped security guards in the basement. When she got there, she was appalled. The destruction, broken frames, smashed glass, and the empty spots on the silk wall coverings where those paintings had hung. Now a lot of people have this romantic view of art theft fed to us by movies mostly. Eccentric billionaires steal the art so they can gaze at it while drinking seven thousand dollar glasses of scotch. Fuck the Simpsons that. even had an episode where Chief Wigan <laughs> finds the concert, with the stolen vermeer in Mr. Burns Mansion. <laughs> One headline in the Boston Globe the day after the theft was Secret Collector's Passion or Ransom Seen as Motive. Mm. But the reality is much more pedestrian, and the Globe within days dispelled that notion of the secret collector. Some of the speculation was because of the random nature of the thefts. Extremely valuable art was passed over for others, making some wonder if certain works were targeted. But the thieves were burglars, not artificianados. Mm. FBI agent Jeff Kelly told Aaron Moriarty on CBS This Morning in 2013.
1: Aaron Moriarty's the one that's on 48 hours. She is, the yes, lady. she was
0: annoying on this. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron, if you're a listener, but you were annoying. <laughs> Kelly has been the FBI investigator on the case since 2002. Kelly said, they could have just as easily stolen a car or TV. They didn't know what they were doing, they weren't sophisticated art thieves. In fact, I believe they woke up the morning after and realized they'd unwittingly committed the heist of the century. The eccentric billionaire thief premise is called The Dr. No Fallacy by art investigators. Mm. Anthony Amore, who's been security director at the Garner since 2005, in his book Stealing Rembrandts, written with former Boston Herald reporter Tom Mashberg, cites the moment in the 1962 James Bond film Dr. No, my favorite, by the way, <laughs> in which Bond, there's a scene with Sean uh, Connery and Wet. Mm, Anyway, in which Bond, played by the super sexy Sean Connery, (laughs) and that's me saying that, strolls past Goya's stolen Duke of Wellington in the private lair of Dr. Julius Snow. So that's where it went, Bond says. The painting had been stolen from London's National Gallery a few months before the movie was made. Other movies, like The Thomas Crown Affair and others, just perpetuated that myth. In a Boston Globe story two days after the theft, Constance Lowenthal, executive director of the International Foundation for Art Research, said, As far as a collector who orders a theft, we don't have a single documented case of a Dr. No. She also said, They're unsalable. There's no place for them in the legitimate market. They're too hot to handle. So, why is art stolen? While well, you'll hear many references to organized crime these days related to art theft, and there are many of those legitimately in the Gardner story, Amore and Mashburg say it's more often disorganized crime. Petty thieves, burglars, and breaking artists who may have ties to organized crime. The Goya painting? It was stolen by a Brit described by Amore as pudgy and penny-pinching, hmm. who was upset with the British government's decision to spend £140,000, about $3.4 in 2011, when Stealing Rembrandt's was written, on the Goya, well, he was charged a licensing fee to watch the BBC. He ferreted security info out of unwitting guards, climbed through a loosened bathroom window at an hour when the museum alarms, the intrusion alarms at the museum were off, and carried the Goya out the same window. The painting was returned in 1965 when, unable to get the government to stop charging the licensing fee, he left it at the luggage office (laughs) of Birmingham New Street Station in London. He then turned himself in. He'd been investigated earlier and just counted as a suspect because he was 61 and they figured he was too old to do it. <laughs> I could go on and on about how the reality dispels the notion of the Dr. No, but you should just read Amore and Ashberg's book, Stealing Rembrandts. I highly recommend it. The FBI estimates that art theft, fraud, looting, and trafficking costs about $6 billion a year in the United States. Wow. The Art Loss Register at the time of Amore's book listed 170,000 stolen items worldwide, The London-based organization said about 20% of missing art is eventually recovered. Other estimates are lower, 5 to 10%. Stolen art almost always can't be sold. It's too prominent, and nowadays the World Wide Web databases by the Art Loss Register, Interpol, and others, the FBI, make it easier to determine if a painting has been stolen. Amore says that the theory popular over the past few decades, that stolen art is used as collateral to buy drugs or guns, is also rare, and pretty much unproven. The most common motive is often for ransom, for much less than the art is worth, and museums rarely have a budget that can pay for them, or collateral, or get out of jail free cards, as we'll see in the Gardner case. The fact it's rarely recovered is depressing if you care about art, and it doesn't bode well for the Gardner recovery. One example is the Nativity with St. Francis and St. Lawrence, painted around 1609 by Caravaggio to go behind the altar at the Oratorio di San Lorenzo in Palermo, Sicily. There it hung for 360 years, until a thief or thieves, probably thieves given it its size, which was 64 and a half square feet, mm. broke into the chapel and cut the painting from its frame. Mm. I don't know a lot about art, but I love Caravaggio. When we were in um, Italy, in Florence, and in Rome, his paintings, they're very kind of dark. Like this one, there's a replica now of it behind the altar where this one was made to go, and you can tell it's a replica. It's fake, you know, it just, it looks like a poster or something. But it's very, there's a lot of realism to it. Mm, It's not one of those, bright, shiny, yeah. beautiful. It's of the nativity right after Jesus was born. Yeah, he's a very realistic. It's, it's and, his and style. it's a beautiful it's a beautiful painting. But more than 48 years later there's been no sign of it. And the story follows one very similar to what you'll hear about the Gardener, mostly including the mafia, the BBC's Alistair Suck And I'm not making that up. Now, if you listen to BBC and... No, I mean, because some people may think I mean Alistair Cook. Oh, I get it. But this is a guy named Alistair. And I'm sorry for all you people in the UK who think I'm a moron. But, you know, we used to know Alistair Thanks for listening. Or as Archie Bunker used to call him, Alice the Cook. (laughs) But in a 2013 documentary about the world's biggest art thefts, Sook said that several informants over the years have talked to investigators about the theft, most depressing are those tips that indicate that it may no longer exist. Ugh. According to one informant, the thieves who cut the picture from its frame did so much damage that when they presented it to the man who had commissioned the theft, he burst into tears. Yeah, well, that's what you get, motherfucker. I know. According to another, the nativity was hidden for safekeeping in a farm outhouse where it was gnawed by rats and pigs. I bet. And so it was burned. Other stories are it was used as capital for heroin, diamonds, or guns. That's what's known about the Caravaggio. Theft of Caravaggio. One, so. so here's what's officially and publicly known about the Gardner theft. In 2013, the FBI said the case was solved. Yeah. They had, they knew who did it. They knew who they were connected to, but they didn't know where the art was, and it was theory,
1: not. So they did a piss-poor job of solving, supposedly. I mean, I'm not saying that they should have, but they shouldn't say it's solved.
0: It's still an active case. I think they've stepped back from that it's solved thing. And then there's stuff that they don't say. There's a lot of wink-winks going Mm. on. In August 2015, the FBI released a six-minute surveillance tape from the night before the theft. It's very intriguing. It flips between outside the side entrance and inside the security area. So it shows Palace Street and the security counter, but it's aimed, it's not to show necessarily what's happening so much at the counter as the door, and you can see the counter. You can't really see who's behind it that much. But security guard Rick Abath lets a man in. This is the night before Hmm. the theft. The man does something at the security desk for several minutes. He's only partially in the picture, and he goes out, turns the lights on his car on, comes back in, and then he ultimately gets in and drives away, in it's six minutes. The FBI didn't say why that footage had not been made public before and whether it was viewed by the FBI in its initial investigation. And it seems to me it would have been very helpful to show that to Rick at Bath the day after the friggin'... I'm so say what the fuck is right. this, mister? The robbers had taken the tape from the night of the heist, mm-hmm. but they didn't take the because tape from the night before. Because this was
1: people... Younger people, this is back when it was videotape. Right,
0: it was on a VCR tape, and lots of places would tape over the tapes. They would do it for like a week. The Boston Globe reported that several law enforcement officials, when this was released in 2015, said the video appears to have been overlooked and mixed in with other evidence at the onset of the case. U.S. attorney at the time, Carmen Ortiz, said a team of investigators began reviewing the original evidence, and that one of them... Assistant U.S. Attorney Robert Fisher requested the video, which was in the custody of the FBI. Officials then decided to release it to the public in hopes it could lead to new information. It apparently didn't. Now my, <laughs> to me, and maybe this is just because I watched a documentary about Whitey Bulger last week, it looks like Steve the Rifleman Fleming, <laughs> with a, the haircut and the windbreaker. Maybe it was. Um, well, there is a Whitey connection to this. Yes, we'll I get thought to later. there was. The Boston Globe has a nice link to the surveillance video where things are pointed out. They put some text yeah. on it. The raw video is confusing because it also shows an older guy, the other security guard Abeth worked with that night, but not the night of the robbery. And since he's not dressed, as <laughs> the se- one that couldn't see coming. right <laughs> and right. And since he's not dressed in a security guard uniform but in geezer wear, including suspenders, many yeah. who watch the video think he's the mysterious guy. <laughs> and they miss the mysterious guy who's kind of in- at the edge in a corner. Uh. So what happens is he's at the very beginning and he leaves to go on his rounds.. Yeah. And then it shows the street, and it shows the guy getting out of a car and a bath letting him in. And uh, the other guy's gone on his rounds. In fact, I w- I re- saw a reference in one report when it was first released to him to the mysterious guy being an older guy in his fifties or sixties, and obviously they were looking at the Ugh, guard and the man who Abath let in was in his thirties. Mm, okay, Abath said all these years later he has no recollection of the encounter, why he let the man in, or yeah, who he sure. was. And now it seems to me and this is just me, you're not supposed to let people in. If there was some innocent reason you let that guy in, if he said, hey, I'm, you know, the museum director's husband, or whatever, the next night when the museum was robbed, I would have said to the cops, you know what, there's this guy who I let in last night, now I know I wasn't supposed to, but he was in here for a few minutes doing something right here at the counter while I stood there. And Well, it makes me wonder if it was like a pot dealer or something. Yeah, you don't know, but why wouldn't, I mean, But he was doing something, it didn't look like a drug transaction. A bath was there, but he wasn't really, and this guy was doing something with, it's hard to tell, but he's fiddling around with something Mm -hmm. for a few minutes. The FBI now says, the goal now is to get the art back and we'll talk about that. Okay, in a
1: so I have a and maybe this is a naive question. If they know who did it and the statute of limitations has run out and this person has no they're dead. Okay, and if they're dead, so they can't well, say. I'm going to go into okay. Okay. all that. All right. Um, I'm sorry, I keep That's okay. I keep trying to
0: jump the gun, but yeah, that's all right. US Attorney Ortiz said in 2015 her office would consider granting immunity to anyone including the thieves if they orchestrate the return of the artwork. Now, maybe she didn't realize the statute of Limitations had run out 20 years before that. But she said immunity probably would not be given in some circumstances, such as if someone was killed to get the paintings. There could be, and even though the statute of Limitations has run out, there could be related charges. Well, there
1: could be civil
0: That would charge, still be, yeah. too. In 2013, as I said, the FBI held a press conference to announce the crime was solved. They had identified the thieves, but wouldn't name them. They said some of the artwork changed hands through organized crime circles and moved from Boston to Connecticut to Philadelphia, where the trail went cold in about 2003. And it's funny, up until then, Rick Abath's name, I don't know when his name finally was made public, but he was still the security guard whose name wasn't made public. And the other security guard who was on duty that night, who was a young guy, a horn player, I read somewhere, it has never been publicly identified. Interesting. FBI investigator Jeff Kelly told Shelley Murphy of the Boston Globe in 2015 that a witness deemed credible by the FBI claims to have seen the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, Rembrandt's only seascape, as I mentioned, when someone tried to sell it in Philadelphia around 2003. The FBI even has a PowerPoint that includes court proceedings, public records, and newspaper accounts to explain its theory that local criminals with mob ties were behind the heist. But, like everything else, it's a theory though by guys who know their stuff more than, say, your average internet true crime (laughs) fan. Us. Us. There are a lot of theories. The Boston Globe last March even published a story by Shelley Murphy and Steve Kirchian, a retired reporter with the paper who won a Pulitzer Prize for something else and has worked on many of the Gardner stories, explores the top theories. This was last year on the anniversary of the theft. And so with the help of the Globe and my added research, I'll go through some theories here. You'll see there are ties that connect many of them, and they aren't necessarily exclusive from each other. The first one is the FBI's theory. The FBI's theory is that local criminals with mob ties were behind it. They believe one of the two fake cops who entered the museum was Dorchester repair shop owner Carmelo Merlino, described by The Globe as a mob associate who boasted to two informants that he planned to recover the artwork and collect the reward. In 1999, he was caught in an FBI sting trying to rob an armored car depot. Hmm. Despite offers of lenience in return for the stolen artwork, he never produced it, and he died in prison in 2005. The FBI believes three others, George Reisfelder, Leonard DiMuzio, and David Turner, were involved in the initial theft as well. Reisfelder died in 1991 of a cocaine overdose. Mm. DiMuzio was found shot to death in East Boston, also in 1991. Ooh. Turner was convicted in the armor car robbery case with Merlino and is scheduled to be released from prison in 2025. He has maintained that the sting was a setup to arrest him, then pressure him for information about the museum heist. Well, too bad he didn't give any. The FBI thinks that after those guys' involvement, the artwork ended up with robber Unc Garente, a convicted bank robber with ties to the mafia in Boston and Philadelphia, who died in 2004. In 2010... Garente's wife, Elaine, told the FBI that before her husband's death, he gave two of the stolen paintings to a Connecticut mobster, Robert Gentile, during a hunting trip in Madison, Maine. I remember, I remember that story. Right, in yeah. Madison, Maine, where Garente had a camp. And they didn't shoot anyone. No, they didn't. They, didn't, just they didn't mistake <laughs> any people for deer, referencing our earlier episode. Yes. Um, so they didn't shoot anyone on that hunting trip. Elaine said that Garente once showed her a painting, one of the two, rolling it out of the tube he kept it in. She told the Globe it didn't look like any of the ones stolen from the gardener, and news accounts say it wasn't a gardener painting, but one stolen in a different robbery. The rolling aspect especially makes it seem that it's unlikely to be one of the gardener ones, and I'll talk more about that later. Oh, right. Gentile didn't pass a lie detector test. This is... garente's the guy who died in 2004. Okay. It's confusing. Gentile didn't pass a lie detector test in which he was asked if he knew about the heist beforehand, or was familiar with the paintings. The lie detector test included showing him the photos and asking him if he was of the paintings and asking him if he was familiar with them. He felt that the lie detector test wasn't fair, and when he said no, it said he was lying. So they showed him the like Rembrandt etching, and he said yes, he he was familiar with it, and it said he was telling the truth. But he told the FBI during that polygraph that Alain Garente showed him the tiny Rembrandt etching. It was a long time ago, he said. It was tiny, like a postage stamp. She pulled it out of her bra, where she was hiding <laughs> it, to show me. She told me it was going to provide for her retirement. Maybe get her a house in Florida with it. I don't see how, <laughs> but okay. I know. His attorney... You- oh, never mind. He may have been lying. Oh, yeah. His wow. many people in this... You'll see. His attorney later had him tested again, saying the atmosphere and other issues made the polygraph a bad test. And, you know, Polly I don't are. Know. I don't put much stock in
1: them. I just, whatever.
0: The Boston Globe, in a story, a very entertaining one, that came out in 2015 by Steve Kirkjian about the whole gentile Garante thing, said his lawyer begged him to tell the room if he knew anything. The room fell silent for a few seconds as he sobbed. In your right mind, you think I would hold out if I knew something? Gentile asked. I know there's a $5 million reward here. Do you think I would deny my family $5 million and get these charges off my back if I could? Because they were offering um, immunity on some gun charges and stuff. I'll tell you again, I don't know anything, and whoever is telling you different is lying. In 2009, the FBI came up here to Maine I to Madison. I like your dramatic greeting, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> In 2009, <laughs> the FBI came up here to Madison, Maine, and checked Grante's camp for evidence, but they didn't find anything. And again, Grante is the one... Who died in 2004. And his
1: wife had the thing in her bra, supposedly. Who supposedly
0: gave the paintings to Gentile. Yes. They also checked Gentile's house in Manchester, Connecticut, where in his basement they found a pile of old newspapers and included in them was the Boston Herald that reported on the theft initially. Hmm? That's not so suspicious. Look at me with my nine eleven box. <laughs> and in it was a typewritten sheet of paper that had the names of the 13 pieces of art that had been stolen. Alongside the names was scratched the amount that each might draw in the black market. Hmm. Gentile, 82 now, and in jail, awaiting trial on federal oh, gun charges. He had gotten out of jail earlier, and now it looks like he's been in jail for several years awaiting trial charges. He thinks he's being pressured by the FBI, and he possibly is. But he was ensnared in two FBI stings and promised lenience in exchange for the stolen artwork. He insists still. He knows nothing about the stolen artwork. And I checked, the last time the Boston Globe had a story about him was last fall, and I haven't seen anything new, so I think he's still in jail and he's still alive, Hmm. although his health isn't great. I mean, I shouldn't say, ah, oh, but you know, right. He's and old. he says he doesn't know anything about it. But authorities allege that he offered to sell the painting several years ago for five hundred thousand dollars each to an undercover FBI agent. His lawyer told CBS this morning in their two thousand thirteen report on this that Gentile doesn't know anything about the art, and he was just trying to con art collectors into thinking he had it so he could rip them off. Oh, yeah. I got caught in my own trap, he's told his attorney. But the FBI isn't so sure. Mm-hmm. Gentile has asked to be put in home confinement because he says the constant gun and other charges the FBI keep jailing him on are just an attempt to harass him into talking about something he doesn't know anything about. And as I said, the last story I found of him was written in November, so I'm going to assume he's still in jail and still not talking. Hmm. The next theory, my personal favorite, the rock and roll guard. All right. Yeah. Nearly 90% of museum robberies worldwide turn out to be inside jobs. Yes, that would... For a variety of reasons, the Gardner thieves were always suspected to have inside help. We mentioned earlier, Rick, Abath, the guard, who was 23 at the time, and the guy who let the guys in. We already discussed how he said he thought they were real cops, was unaware about the rules say not to let cops in, and how he thought St. Pat's revelers may have climbed over the fence around the museum and caused some trouble, which is why the cops would have shown up there, and he wouldn't have been the one who had called them if if there was an outside disturbance within the fence. Ameth, now 50 or 51, depending on when his birthday is, and living in Vermont, last anyone knew, has been consistent in that he had nothing to do with it. He told The Globe in 2013 that he'd passed two lie detector tests taken right after the heist. He admitted to cops that since he worked after gigs by his struggling rock band, Ukiah, he'd sometimes show up drunk or stoned. Mm, oh, well. He dropped out of the Berkeley School of Music, which is a night, uh, you have to be a pretty talented musician. And that's there. the Berkeley in Boston. L-E-E, right. Yeah. L-E, L-E, Cal- not yeah. L-E-Y in California. And let's face it, the corkscrew curl long-haired mullet didn't help. Yeah. But there are some issues aside from his rock and roll lifestyle. One of the paintings, Manet's Che Tortoni, was stolen from the Blue Room. The only footsteps picked up by the motion detectors that night were Abbas from his patrol at 12.27 a.m. and again at 12.53 a.m. The motion detectors never picked up the thieves going in. Maybe it was a room. ghost. The broken frame from that painting was found on the chair of Lyle Grindle, the head of security at the time, in his office. Hmm. Abbas said he can't explain the motion detector issue or why the frame was found in the security office. Then there's that pesky videotape from the night before that he has no memory of. And you know, you still think if the FBI had only asked him the day after or the day of the heist instead of 20 something years later, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he'd have more of a memory of it. Amos's name wasn't released for years and he never spoke to the media. He gave an interview to the Globe in 2013 to get publicity for a manuscript he'd written about the theft. One of many involved with this story. FYI. <laughs> He told The Globe he'd first realized he was under suspicion in 2009, when FBI agents asked to meet him at a Brattleboro, Vermont coffee shop. He wrote in his manuscript, After 19 years of not hearing a word from the people charged with the task of solving the great museum robbery, in caps, they popped up. They wanted to talk. One agent told him, You know, we've never been able to eliminate you as a suspect. They told him they had been watching his bank accounts for years for any sides of sudden wealth. But he lived in a crummy apartment in Brattleboro, Vermont, with his girlfriend. And, Brattleboro's um, pretty. It, it is, but it's not yeah, okay. a wealthy area. He didn't live in a nice apartment. He mm. wasn't. If he had any wealth, he wasn't using it. Yeah. The FBI thought, too, maybe he'd come in contact with the type of people who would rob the gardener. He held monthly keg parties in Alston, a Boston suburb, right on the fringes of both the Boston College and Boston University campuses, that drew hundreds of college kids, most of whom were strangers, and he threw those to make ends meet since the Gardner job only paid seven thirty five an hour and he was had a rock band. But also I'll say back in the that wasn't that was, bad. I know. He told the Globe that on several occasions other gardener guards or night watchmen would show up at the keg parties and invariably the conversation would turn to the inadequacy of the gardener security system. Could someone who had friends who were robbers or in the underworld have heard us complaining how awful the security system was? Absolutely, he told the Globe. We were talking about it in the open all the time. But did I know someone picked it up and used it to rob the place? Absolutely not. About 20 minutes before the thieves came to the door that night, Abbott opened the side door the thieves later came to and then shut it. It was after one of his rounds and right before he and the guy at the desk switched off. Investigators wonder if he was signaling the thieves. Gardner security officials said the guards were not supposed to open doors as part of their patrol and federal investigators have told Abbott that none of the other watchmen that they interviewed did so. But Abbott said he did it to make sure the door was securely locked. I don't know what the others did, but I was trained to do it that way, he said. Huh. He said security logs would show that he tested the door on other nights as well. The FBI sees the logs, but has declined to comment to the Globe on what they show. And I feel like I saw somewhere, but the video from that night is gone, so I probably didn't. Maybe I saw a reenactment somewhere huh. of him like, opening the door and poking his head out and closing it years ago. Adding to Abba's pain is the fact that James J. McGovern, who worked on the federal investigation for the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2006, wrote a novel that portrayed a night security guard <laughs> as an accomplice in the Gardner Heights. The motive? He owed the thieves a large cocaine debt, oh, so, he le- so he let them in in repayment. The character with whom the night watchman makes the deal closely resembles David Turner, one of the guys mentioned in the FBI's theory. But Abith said he never had any connection to Turner and has no recollection of buying cocaine from him. Though he doesn't say that Turner looks vaguely like the younger or more stocky of the two thieves. The Globe said. And by the way, he gave them descriptions and they did composites that you can see online. And he said the composites were just awful and looked nothing like. Well, they never the guys. look anything like
1: anybody. Right. Well, not always, but.
0: So here's a small piece. It isn't really a theory. But it's just another interesting little tidbit, and we'll call this the wrong place, wrong record, wrong time guy. Brian McDevitt, a native of Swampscott, Mass., was 20 in 1980 when he and a buddy hijacked a Federal Express truck and knocked out the driver with ether. Dressed like FedEx drivers, they carried duct tape to bind museum employees and tools to cut paintings from frames at the Hyde Collection in Glens Falls, New York. But they got stuck in traffic and got to the museum shortly after it closed, foiling their plan. And I'm not sure what their plan was or how that foiled it. I couldn't find out. But they were fingered by the FedEx driver and confessed. McDevitt served a few months in jail. He lived in Boston at the time of the Gardner robbery. He'd moved to California shortly after the robbery, and the FBI questioned him there twice in 1992 because of the similarities with the Glens Falls attempted robbery. He was also questioned before a federal grand jury in Boston in 1993. At the time, his lawyer told The Globe that McDevitt knows absolutely nothing about the Garner heist and couldn't provide any information that would help investigators. He died at the age of 43 in 2004 in Columbia.
1: Columbia the country? Yes.
0: And now here's another favor. Everyone wants to be part of the party theory. Okay. On August twenty seventh, 1997... The Boston Herald reported that reporter Tom Mashberg, the guy who wrote the Stealing Rembrandt's book later with Anthony Amore, and he was covering the Gardner story for the Herald, had been shown Rembrandt's store on the Sea of Galilee in a warehouse. Mashberg said he was invited to take a ride by some people involved in the story late one Saturday night while he was working at the office. And it's funny how a lot of accounts of this late-night ride, including that BBC documentary, don't say it went all the way to Brooklyn, New York. Which would be, to me, Two an alarming hours. thing. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, in a dark warehouse in Brooklyn, New York, William Youngworth, a petty criminal and antiques dealer, nudged a rolled-up work out of a cardboard tube, unfurled it, and in the light of a flashlight, showed Mashburg what looked like the Rembrandt. He wasn't allowed to get close to it or touch it. And that started negotiations between Youngworth and the feds in an attempt to locate the art. When asked later by the feds to give credible evidence... Youngberg gave Mashburg a vial of paint chips that he said came from the painting. Huh. Uh. Youngworth wanted immunity from prosecution, any prosecution related to the theft, the dismissal of state criminal charges pending against him, and the release of his friend Miles Connor Jr., who we'll hear more about later, a notorious art thief from Mill Inn, Mass., who you can read all about in Stealing Rembrandt's, and he was in prison at the time of the heist, and he was in prison at, in 1997, seven years later when this happened. He was serving a 10-year prison term on federal drug charges. It turned out that the paint chips were not from the Rembrandt, though they could be from the Vermeer or some other 17th century painting. Ah, so they were, oh. They were, some of them was Red Lake, which is the paint that was used in the, there's a, like, rug or a blanket in the Vermeer Mm -hmm. painting. People seem to think that that's good evidence that Youngworth had the paintings or knew where they were, but I wonder if Youngworth could have somehow come across or been given chips from some other lesser work of art from somewhere else from the same time. He was an antiques dealer. Yeah, he, he could people. have had an old painting that was... Or, right. Who knows? Another little detail the feds won't say much about. And it looked like when Aaron Moriarty was quizzing FBI guy Jeff Kelly in the CBS This Morning 2013 interview, he said more about it, but it was kind of edited out. Like, she's like, well, couldn't it be? And then it was like his answer didn't flow right from her mm. question. So... he. You know, and he says something like, well, it certainly could have, but it looked like he's conceding and that he had said something before that indicated he didn't think it was, but that wasn't part of the show and I couldn't find anyone to say it was. Youngworth, who lives in western Massachusetts, won't talk to the press about the Gardner heist. The Globe says that Mashburg says he now believes that whatever Youngworth showed him For a few seconds in the soft glow of a flashlight, as it's been described many times, Mm. was not Rembrandt's The Storm, but a replica. It's funny because as recently as that 2013 BBC documentary with Alistair (laughs) Sook, although um, that could have been edited too, he doesn't really come out and say he doesn't think. They kind of talk around it. But I'm like, duh. The Boston Herald's headline at the time was, we've seen it, with a big exclamation point. And I haven't looked for or read that story. But Amori and others say you couldn't roll up that painting because of the amount of varnish, yeah, and the canvas was too thick, and it was too stiff to roll up. So nobody could unroll it and unfurl it. And I would also question how it was seen for a few seconds in the soft glow of a flashlight by a guy who doesn't seem to be an art expert. How would he presume immediately that to be the genuine... If you tried to roll something like that up, the age it would of would crack. the varnish, it. it would crack. Right, right. Yeah. Amori kind of says that in one of the documentaries I've seen him in. In any case, in a story reported by The Globe in 2015, when director Anne Hawley retired, she said that she and board member... Arnold Hyatt agreed to a back-channel meeting negotiating with Youngworth at a Tony New York hotel in September 1997, so this was a month after the Smashburg thing. We tried to keep it under the radar, Holly said, and I don't think that was reported until the Globe reported it in 2015. The discussion lasted hours, and she said Youngworth kept excusing himself to go to the bathroom, and it turned out he was wearing a wire. Hyatt, the member of the board of the museum, agreed to personally loan Youngworth $10,000 to aid the recovery of the paintings, but nothing ever came out of the talks. And Yenworth has been described by the FBI and others as kind of a con man, bullshit artist, um, and nobody knows if he's telling the truth or not. But interestingly, in April 1994, three years before that, and when the statute of limitations was still in effect, the museum got a letter with a New York postmark promising return of the paintings in exchange for $2.6 million and full immunity from prosecution for the thieves and those who held the paintings. Because the overture involved a request for immunity from prosecution, the museum turned the letter, and I said postmarked from New York, over to the FBI. Huh. And the Globe reported this in 2005. The letter writer showed considerable knowledge of paintings and of the international art world, the Globe wrote. He said the stolen paintings were being stored in archival conditions and had not yet been sold. But, he warned, the museum should agree swiftly to the exchange because the paintings were being held in a country where a buyer who did not know that they had been stolen could claim legal ownership. The writer proposed that if the gardener was open to negotiating a ransom, it should send a signal by arranging to have the <laughs> numeral one.
1: <laughs> Sorry.
0: By by arranging to have the numeral one inserted in the U.S. foreign dollar exchange listing for the Italian lira in the Boston Sunday Globe of May first, wow, nineteen ninety four. That sounds very
1: complicated. It does,
0: and the Globe did it, inserting that one in the foreign currency exchange in the Globe listing in a way that didn't mess up the accuracy of (laughs) the listing, and also in exchange for that they wanted the scoop if something happened. The following week, the museum received a second letter from the anonymous writer. He said he was encouraged to see that the museum was interested in negotiating But alarmed by the aggressive reaction by federal, state, and local law enforcement after the museum received the letter, the Globe wrote, were the museum and authorities interested in getting the paintings returned or in arresting a low-level intermediary, he wondered. And then in all caps, he said, You cannot have both! Adding, right now I need time to both think and start the process to ensure confidentiality of the exchange. And the museum never heard from him again. Hmm. And it seems like that could have been Youngworth. But no Globe story or any that I can find ever tied it to him. Granted, that was only reported in a Globe story. Well, actually only. I think it was a 2005 story. And Holly herself years later kind of made an appeal to him on... I think it was that CBS Good Morning thing saying, please get in contact again. We'd like to talk to you. And you'd think if it had been Youngworth, she already talked to him and would have known that was from him. But maybe not. I don't know. It just seems like it would be him. Yeah. But in any case, Miles Connor, who we mentioned earlier, the famous art thief, says he and Robert Donati, another guy associated with organized crime, often talked about the flawed Gardner security system that would climb trees on the grounds to watch the guards on their rounds and try to figure out has robbed the museum. One time he said they cased the museum and he told Donani he wanted that Chinese vase. The vase is one of the, you know, it's one of the items that was stolen and it's one of the ones that causes people to scratch their heads like, why did they take that? In his 2009 biography, yes, another writer, (laughs) another writer, in quotes, The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master... (laughs) The Art of the Heist. Yeah. Well, no, it's a long title. The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Art Thief, Rock and Roller, and Proud Son. Oh, Jesus. Connors wrote that a friend, David Houghton... Visited him in federal prison in California after the heist, and told him that Donati was one of the thieves, and that Donati planned to use the art to bargain for Connor's release. Houghton died of a heart attack the year after the heist, so Connor had a lot of people looking out for him. Apparently, Donati and Houghton, and yeah, and by the way, Connor is quite a character. He had a rock band, Miles and the Wild Ones, (laughs) or something like that in the '60s, and he also there's also a main connection with him. Fifty years ago, he was visiting relatives in Sullivan, Maine, down east, yeah. and was arrested stealing antiques from the house of a woman who had just died. While in the Hancock County Jail in Ellsworth, he confronted a jail guard with a bar of soap he had blackened with shoe polish oh and carved God. into the shape of a gun. He managed to escape well, you know, and was for? free for five days, two of which he spent hiding in the attic of the Ellsworth Public Library oh. before he was snagged in a manhunt in Hancock. And he was back up there for a visit three years ago because somebody's making a documentary about him, or was at the time. And that was his first unsuccessful foray into crime, and so they wanted to... I
1: worked with someone who grew up in Sullivan went to high school there. Oh,
0: cool story. Yeah, I know, isn't uh-huh. it? And so the next theory is the get-out-of-free bandwagon. Now, if you remember, Donati wanted the art to use his bargaining chip to get his friend Miles Connor out of jail. Well, Vincent Ferreira, who was a mob boss in Boston, is at the center of another theory involving Donati. Apparently Donati, who was, like I said, an associate of Ferrera, visited him twice in prison shortly after the Gardner Heights and confessed to Ferrera that he had stolen the art and planned to use it as a bargaining chip to get Ferreira out of jail. But Donati also said he was worried about the intense FBI manhunt. He said he was going to hide the stolen treasures and lie low for a while, before making contact to negotiate in exchange for Ferreira's freedom. Donati's body was found in September 1991, stuffed in the trunk of his white Cadillac, parked on a street about a half mile from his Ravia, as we say in New England, home. He had been viciously beaten and stabbed. So the theory involving Ferreira, who was released from prison in 2005, is a lot like the one involving Miles Connor. Donati stole it to either get... Connor mm-hmm. out of jail or Ferreira, or maybe there was enough art that he could get them both oh, out of jail. Jesus. What a giving person. <laughs> He's putting uh, all his money. Yeah. Speaking of get out of jail free, Whitey Bulger. Oh, yeah. Get out of jail free card. At the time the Garner was robbed, James Whitey Bulger, Boston's most famous gangster, who was also an FBI informant. He got carte blanche on murders and all sorts of other stuff for decades. And this was a the Gardner heist was a few years before his pals at the FBI tipped him off that he was going to be arrested and he took off and was on the FBI's 10 most wanted <laughs> list until he was caught in 2011 after 16 years on the run. But anyway, the Globes said there was widespread speculation that even if Whitey didn't have a hand in the heist, he likely knew who did. But the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office said there's no evidence linking him to the crime. Although I'm not sure how much you can trust the FBI where Whitey Bulger is involved. No, shit. Kevin Weeks, one of Bulger's many associates who got immunity for testifying against him, told The Globe during a 2010 interview that Bulger and his sidekick Steve the Rifleman Flemmy (laughs) were not involved in the theft but made their own unsuccessful search for the artwork. He was trying to find out who did it, said Weeks. He said Bulger wanted the paintings to use in the future for himself as a get-out-of-jail-free card. When Bulger was captured in Santa Monica, California in 2011, $822,000 in cash and 30 guns were found stuffed in the walls of his apartment. Ooh. But no paintings. <laughs> and he's 88 now, serving two consecutive wow. life sentences for the for the 31 counts he was found guilty of, including 11... Of the 19 murders he was charged. So now, here's a theory. It wasn't in the Boston Globe's list. It's a fairly new one, and I call it the drunken Irish theory. Last year, this theory came to light. Arthur Brand, a Dutch art detective who was described by some British newspapers as Indiana Jones of the art world, believes the art ended up in the hands of the IRA. And they were hmm. still around and active in 1990, as yes, yes, you were. know. And Brand had some That's success. That's the
1: Irish Republican art. yes. For those of you who don't. Yeah,
0: uh, that had a lot of connections to Boston because it has a very large Irish-American population. Brand has had some success finding art on the black market and claims to broker deals with terrorist groups, the mafia, and other criminals. Quote, On one hand, you have the police, insurance companies, collectors, and on the other hand, you have the criminals, the art thieves, and the forgers. So there are two different kinds of worlds, and they do not communicate. So I put myself in the middle, he told CBS last June. He said he's had talks with former IRA members. Quote, after a few Guinnesses, after a few talks, you can see it in their eyes that they know more. Oh, Brand says, And I say, and while I don't want to paint a whole heritage with a wide brush, and I have Irish blood myself, but I know a lot of Irishmen, a lot of Irishmen, who after a few Guinnesses, you can see all sorts of bullshit in their eyes. They do a lot of talking. I was going
1: to say, just because they're talking... I, doesn't mean they're telling you anything that's say, true. <laughs> I, would,
0: I would not say the best investigative technique with no. Irishmen is plying them with Guinness and then looking for the truth in their eyes. No, I need neither. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> Bloomberg, at the same time CBS did their story, also reported that Bram believes the art is in the Netherlands hmm. and, quote, we are now negotiating with certain people. Bloomberg also reported that he believes the thefts were carried out by two or three petty criminals who sold the art to a criminal gang. Hmm. Sounds like he's been reading the newspapers for the past 20 years because <laughs> that's what the FBI has been saying publicly since 2013. So I don't think that's a, you know, Unique it's the same or, thing The Amore, Anthony Amore, you know, the gardener security guy, yeah. said in the same article he believes the works are still in the U.S. Art that is stolen in America tends to stay in America, he said but I'd be happy to be proven wrong. I assume he means if the art is found somewhere else. Brand does make a good point that people involved may not trust the FBI to keep its promise that they won't be arrested. And I felt that, too. I mean, we've seen enough shows with cops, confession tapes and stuff, cops <laughs> lying to people. And even though the statute of limitations on the original theft ran out more than 20 years ago, there could be other charges related to them, especially with all those deaths in 1991 and stuff. I know. You know, it could be the circles those people ran in, but who knows? It could have something to do with the art. At the time, and this was early last summer, Brand said the case could be cracked within months. Somebody I'm talking to knows something, he said. These people are not idiots. They know that they can't just hand them over and walk away with impunity. They think even if they've been offered immunity, the police will have some tricks up their sleeves. What I can do is I can provide them a way to return the works without ever having contact with the police. I can even promise them that they can get the reward. Oh, please. And the reporter asked Bran, would he really hand over the $10 million? And both in the Bloomberg story and the CBS story, both which were remarkably similar in some of their um, wording and stuff, they asked that question. He said, if I can be the one who can bring them to the museum... Give me a good glass of Guinness, and that's reward enough. Oh please! And he also admitted that the notoriety of being the guy who cracked the Gardner well, maybe, case. Maybe, but, but still, he's kind of full of himself. Well, he did say he hoped to have it done shortly within the year, 2017, and here we are, January 2018, and they the reward is still ten million dollars. Yeah. And maybe there's a reason. They didn't. I mean, it was only going to be 10 million until the end of 2017. I'm going to get that reward. Then it was going to go back to 5 million. You have to return the art in good condition. And they didn't. (laughs) So there must be a reason that they've kept it at 10 million. I wonder. So maybe there there is somebody. But anyway, there have been a lot of dead ends in the years that have taken investigators all over the world, including, yes, Ireland and the Netherlands. So why does the stolen art matter so much? You know, the statute of limitations is done and it's only art. Right? Yeah. But, you know, it's not like somebody stole an expensive yacht or something like that. And going back to the Dr. no fallacy, FBI investigator Kelly, Jeff Kelly, pointed out to Aaron Moriarty of CBS that the paintings, quote, are most likely in an attic somewhere or a basement, and they're not being viewed by anyone. And that's part of the crux. In fact, he seemed a little emotional when he said that. Tough FBI guy. Masterpieces that have survived centuries that add to the fabric of who we are and what we're about are just gone. Or someone's garbage right now. Anne Hawley, who began as director of the museum six months before the theft, retired in 2015 with the empty frames still hanging mm. in the museum. The Vermeer was her favorite painting. Isabella Stewart Gardner had put a chair in front of it so that you could sit in front of it and just stare at it. Hawley said that the crime was devastating at the time, and it still is. And she pointed out that it's a crime against culture and a crime against civilization. Antonio Rosado... One of the investigators still searching for the stolen Caravaggio almost 50 years later said the thief stole a piece of our history. When we lose reminders of the past, our identity fades away. And I don't think you have to be an art expert to get it. Those empty frames at the gardener have a pull and a poignancy that I think most people can feel when they look at them. And much more than if the frames weren't there. Yes. And it's chilling to think that 28 years from now, They could still be empty. Yeah. And that is the story of the Gardner heist. It is sad. It makes me very sad. It is, And it's frustrating, too, because particularly the era that those paintings are from, and as I said, you know a lot more about art history and stuff than I do, but just as a layman, the artists of those times were telling the story of the times. Yeah. I mean, there weren't all the things that we have now to tell stories. And the paintings aren't just like the concert. here's the concert. It's a very kind of staid little group, but there's these paintings on the wall behind them. behind them. That them. are kind like of r- room, ribald. Yeah, and, it's
1: like a big, yeah.
0: And there's a lot going on in the painting, and I won't get into a whole big art thing about yeah. it. But it's important to i mean it's part of our culture and i think anne holly and one of the things pointed out what if you could never hear beethoven's seventh symphony again I'm and they started playing it because like i wouldn't know beethoven's seventh mm-hmm. Symphony she said that's what taking this art away the whole point of museums and the whole point
1: of any kind of art is to share it with other people is you're expressing yourself to the rest of the world so whether it's visual art writing acting, dancing, whatever you're doing, the whole point of it is to share it with the public. Right. And like I think it was uh, Marcel yeah. Duchamp said that art isn't art until someone else has seen it. Oh, yeah. Which yes. is true. That whole Dr. No theory would bother me anyway because what's the point of having it if no one else can see it? The other thing is you're just you're taking it away.
0: You're taking it away from everybody else. Right. You're taking that. Right. You're depriving the rest of the world And thousands and thousands and thousands of people go through the gardener every year. These paintings have been around for 300 years or whatever because they meant something and they Mm -hmm. said something. I mean, there were paintings that were painted in the 1700s or 1600s or whatever that nobody's ever heard of because they didn't. But you don't have to be an art expert to look at the storm on the Sea of Galilee Mm -hmm. or that Caravaggio Mm -hmm. that was stolen in Italy and not be moved by it and not realize that you're looking at something impressive and another human being made when you're
1: in a museum and you're looking at something that maybe you've only seen in a book before and you're standing in front of the actual thing and you're thinking somebody made made those brush strokes that i'm looking at right now
0: i have to tell you when we were in florence and i saw michelangelo's david that you've seen photos of and little replicas of and stuff and you're standing there saying, I'm looking at the thing that <laughs> yeah. Michelangelo... Yeah. And it takes you right away. It does. And it's, the fact that, it is, it And the other chills. thing,
1: just the whole practical thing of cut... The, 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 the
0: disrespect they showed
1: for the art. But also, a lot of our in museums is in its original frame. It's stretched. These on were. They were yeah. stretched
0: on And the stretchers. frames
1: around them, the the ornamental frame is original right. a lot of times. And sometimes artists it's take part the of the artwork.
0: It yeah, they
1: stretch it before you even paint it. Right. And taking it off that it ruins the integrity of it. But I can't imagine that if they're still around that they're not totally damaged. Well, right. And they would take a lot
0: there would right. take a lot because of restoration. Nobody, because the art wasn't treated with respect from the no. beginning. It wasn't stolen in a manner that showed that people even knew what they were stealing. It was taken by, like Jeff Kelly, the FBI guy, said, it could have been TVs, it could have been cars. It was something that they felt was worth something, that they could get some capital for. And that's why I despair of it ever being found. Because yes. they, they didn't Once they have realized, enough... they realized they couldn't... Right, they didn't have enough respect for it to understand, and even if they knew they wouldn't be able to sell it, like on that BBC thing they were talking, and I didn't fully understand it, how organized crime kind of trades this yeah, stuff. Yeah, they use
1: it for collateral somehow. And, and, I, and don't I don't understand, understand how either. if it's
0: worth nothing, how do you use it? Well when I read the the book The Goldfinch,
1: she um Donna Tart there was a character in the book that was kind of discussing how it's used as collateral and I still frankly don't understand it because you can't really get any money. But maybe get out of jail free right. because because it was stolen well, like I get to the get out of jail free, back. but
0: like on the when they were talking about the Caravaggio on that BBC documentary. Yes. They were talking about it may have been traded over the... Yeah, and I've between, heard that, but that I'm it like, does that. But I'm like, if it's not worth anything, how I don't, do you use that's it? That's what I don't get But in any I've, case,
1: I'm not, the,
0: they were taken out of greed. It was just very disrespectful. Like, any theft is disrespectful. Yeah, it's it, is, property, it is. not your property, but I think it's different to steal a car. You're
1: stealing something that, that you can't put a price on it, and I'm somebody that, being an artist myself, annoys me, although I would not turned down a million dollars for a painting that i did i always think it's disgusting when paintings are sold for that much money i don't understand it you can't put a price on it there shouldn't be a price on it. it's human
0: nature to put prices on it i know it is but and this whole art being worth millions feels almost like a false construct it it is a false
1: construct and it's also fairly new you know there always have been Expensive pieces of art.
0: Well, you look, she paid $20,000 for the... But nowadays... For Europa.
1: Nowadays, a $500,000 painting, that's a lot of money, but it's not like some of the paintings, that some of the artworks that have been sold. And I remember when the... It used to be Westbrook College, now University of New England, but they have a little art gallery there. And they, for a long, long time, owned of uh, Vincent van Gogh. <laughs> flowers, I know. I'm Irises. And, um, oh, I was
0: close. It was a flower.
1: <laughs> they owned it for a long time, and I think they sold it in order to get money to fix things around there, but they owned it for a long time, and when it, it broke a record when it sold, and that was like the late 80s. And even then, I was disgusted by something, a painting getting that much money, and I don't know. It's hard to explain, and, and maybe people don't understand what I'm trying to say, but it just cheapens it to put a price on it, I guess. Right. And Vincent Van Gogh died penniless. Well, that's one of the ironies. And misunderstood. And the only people that really loved him were, he had a couple friends, but I think the only people that really stood by him were his brother and his wife. And, his brother's wife, not his, he didn't have a wife. He was mentally ill and he, he had a lot of issues. Right, um, it's
0: one thing to get the money while you're alive. Yeah, Artists don't even get royalties. Right, you sell it and it's If I sell it for
1: it. a thousand bucks and then you know, 50 years later I'm still alive and someone sells it for a million bucks, I get nothing. Right. So that kind of sucks. It does. But but and anyways, that's my own personal rant, but I just feel like the worst thing about it is we will probably never see them again. You know, they probably have been eaten up by rats are thrown out once people realize right. that. Or they were.
0: were under, like, one of the things was they looked under Bob Gentile's shed in Connecticut, and you think about it, like you said earlier in The Gardener, yeah. you can't even use a certain kind of pencil or chalk in there, and now somebody's sticking them under a shed. Oh, and they keep them. Or they're carting them, them up to their hunting camp in Maine.
1: 400 year old works yeah. of art. They, uh, you'll see if you're in a museum where there's an old watercolor or something, they'll have it under this little curtain that you have to lift up to look at or yeah. something. They, well,
0: and look at with the, the Rembrandt. How they didn't want people to, you know, people wanted to keep touching the face of Rembrandt, and you can't. You can't. It's tragic, and whoever did it. (laughs) I think a lot of things about this story, the dollar signs, are what intrigue some people. It's the tragedy of it that I find the most intriguing, that these really ignorant people, of all the things in Boston you could go steal, they went and stole this. And got nothing for it. In fact, Erin Moriarty says, and this was one of the things that annoyed me about that CBS thing, she says to Jeff Kelly, isn't it the perfect crime? And he goes, no. And she goes, but they got away with it. And he goes, well... To me the perfect crime is you not only get away with it but you profit from yeah. the crime. And he said that's the tragedy. Nobody's not that it wouldn't have been a tragedy if somebody profited, but nobody's ever profited that from we know this. of and They're uh, gone. Uh, you probably
1: know if they did. I mean, you, some, would you would know. People
0: would know. If those paintings had circulated anywhere where somebody made some money from them, you would know it. And that's the thing about it, that just the tragedy, that something really important and beautiful has been destroyed by ignorant people who didn't know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I have a hard time believing Rick Abbott didn't have something to do with it with all the the stuff that went on the night before that he never even remembered i would remember that if i were him oh i would remember that i just wonder if he didn't i don't know if he was in on it but it was something that could have
1: unwittingly unwittingly yes and not realized and then after the fact he's like "Oh, oh shit holy
0: shit but i find it very interesting all the people involved that nobody's Talked even though there have been promises of immunity, the statute yes. of limitations that no one. Has I know that
1: is where But
0: I also wonder why, like, if somebody
1: had a list, like, not I'm not talking the doctor no theory, but like, why certain ones were taken, and why did someone have a list? And said, okay, this, 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 and this is what I want. And why, was it, why weren't other ones taken? And it just makes you wonder. I
0: Well, they think some of the things were taken on a whim. Like the Napoleonic filial. Maybe oh, yeah. the vase was easy to grab. They went right for the Sea of Galilee. So, I think I read somewhere that that and the Vermeer were like targeted. Yeah. And then they just decided to take a bunch other of others. Shit
1: that was in you know, map.
0: and they really didn't know. They walked right past things that were more yeah. valuable than those paintings.
1: And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't know what was more valuable than another. Or maybe someone
0: just said, Even go in there. Art, I mean, get I this just... one. Get the one of the ship on the storm, you know. And, and whatever get that else one, you can and, grab. The, yeah. and then grab a bunch of other stuff and be sure you get it. And it's funny because some accounts say they took a leisurely 81 minutes and some other accounts say they could have stayed in there all night but they got in and out in 81 minutes and it's like so there's a lot of different perceptions yeah about it but the bottom line is they were just like there was one on that BBC documentary in the van gogh museum where two of his paintings yes. were stolen yes. and the theory is why these two because in the catalog those were the first two in the catalog so the thieves looked and said, okay, let's take these. They're the first two in the catalog. But in any case, I strongly suggest reading Anthony Amori and Tom Ashberg's Stealing Rembrandts for more about art theft. It doesn't tell you a lot about the Gardner heist. It mentions it a little because the it's still an open investigation. But I also strongly suggest you pay the money for a month to get past the Boston Globe's paywall and find their Gardner... Page that has all sorts of stories and stuff on it because anything you want to read about this that's worth anything has been written by the Boston Globe. It's just funny to me that you would choose our. It seems to like steal. It seems like there's so many
1: other easier things to steal. I know I money. Know. I mean, robbing a I bank think would probably be People see the easier. dollar
0: signs and don't think about the hassle that passing these paintings around or whatever mm-hmm. for thirty years. And but in any case, that's my report. Well, thank you. It was very yes. interesting. And now we have some recommendations. So, because the Gardner heist happened in 1990, we started thinking about 1990. <laughs> so we decided to look at what some of the movies that were popular in 1990 were yes. and say what we thought, if we have feelings about some of them.
1: Well, Goodfellas.
0: Now, I liked Goodfellas. Uh,
1: I don't remember if I liked it or not.
0: I liked it when I saw it, because it was fresh and it had just come out. In fact, I'm surprised, looking at the movies of the 1990s, in 1990, how many I actually saw yes. in the theater but it became too much of a thing, and yeah, so I stopped that's liking why. It. And
1: I don't generally like mobster movies. I don't
0: either. I did like the original Godfather, yeah, I and maybe Godfather 2. Mm-hmm. Godfather 3, I think, came out in 1990.
1: It
0: was eh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Home Alone. Eh. Yeah. no,
1: nah, I don't stuff. think I saw that. I was 25. I wouldn't have gone to I it. I saw it once I on think TV. I've seen it on TV. Yeah. Miller's Crossing, I love that movie. Did you see it? I did. I think it's Cone Brothers, right? Yes. Yes, it
0: is a Cone Brothers movie, and it's good. And it's a drama, and
1: it doesn't it's a, not have a any of the comedy. All. No. Right. Total Recall, Schwarzenegger. Nope. No. Edward Scissorhands. I, yeah, it I liked it all me. right. It disturbed it, me. I went to a lot of movies at this time in the theater, because I was dating. That's what we did for dates. I was yeah. dating someone that...
0: I can't remember why I went.
1: Dances with Wolves. Man. Yeah. I got, Kevin Costner. Sorry, Kevin, if you're listening, but that he did Go to now. see it because
0: it was a big thing but i i think that's what I, I, I don't think i ever saw i don't think i ever saw it it
1: looked like it was too long wasn't it like three hours long yeah, it was or really something? long misery i liked
0: i movie. liked misery although the book was much better the book was that better now this is the stephen king movie where the woman kathy james bates khan hostage <laughs> yes. until he writes another <laughs> book about
1: uh yeah uh, because she's mad because he killed off his character yeah that he hated yeah he was happy yeah and but I, you know what james Con a writer, Stephen King, whatever you know, you can bitch and hate your character, but if you've been made a fucking millionaire for it, tough shit.
0: It's easy for you to say you're not a writer. Yeah, I know. So here's one
1: we both have opinions on: Mm -hmm. Pretty Woman. Uh, And that's a couple people have
0: told me, oh, that's my favorite
1: movie. Why? I don't know. You know, I didn't like
0: it. I'm not a Julia Roberts fan anyway. But a movie that glorifies prostitution. And the exploitation of women and makes women and girls think that it's romantic to be used that way. Has bothered me. Since always bothered me. But
1: I also remember reading, and I never read the the source. There was a book that was called Three Thousand Dollars or something like that. She doesn't end up with the guy in the end. It mm. doesn't end like it's not a romantic comedy. Put no. it out. But I never liked As that mo- movie. The lives
0: of most sex workers are not romantic uh, comedies no. And the Back to the Future Part Three, I don't ever no. watch. sequels I saw the original. Yeah, I don't watch sequels either.
1: Ghost. I saw. Yes. Ooh, I always think of Whoopi bah. Goldberg. You in danger, girl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yeah, her and Whoopi, okay.
1: are, they don't really Demi show Moore it. Was Demi with the short hair? Yes. Yeah. She made the short hair. Um, it was a little creepy Patrick the way he Swayze. hovered around. He got into Whoopi's body. I think she and Whoopi I got it on, but part. they don't show. They yeah. don't really show. It. And then what's his name? There, uh, Tony Um Go- Gold Goldwin, because he's Goldwin. he's of the Metro Goldwyn Meyer Oh He's yeah, in that okay. family. He got taken to hell by those black things. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Not> all that
0: <laughs> awakenings. Yes, I saw. Uh, but it disturbed no, me in No, I many don't. Ways. I never wanted I'm to see that. I'm not big on that type of thing. No. I, I like a more reality-based...
1: Arachnophobia, I did see it. I don't remember anything about I it. I saw it
0: later on TV at a at a very depressing New Year's Eve party. It <laughs> was at a low point in my life. <laughs> Sorry. The
1: Grifters, now excellent movie. Yes, loved The Grifters. Loved I saw it more than once. In Let's fact, talk. Who was in in that? In fact, uh, Annette Bening. Uh, Angelica Houston and John Cusack. John Cusack, yeah. I actually went when I moved to Ellsworth. I saw it once with my boyfriend Joe at the time. And then I was visiting mom and dad. It was my birthday. And I think it was the following year, but it was at the little theater in Ellsworth. They have that little theater right. downtown. And so I made
0: mom and dad go with me. Yeah. I. Dad did, mom a,
1: liked it. Dad didn't really
0: like it. I've always been a John Cusack fan.
1: Burton on a Wire with Mel Gibson. And I, liked I, I, liked I liked that movie. I believe I liked that movie. Days of Fun. One never saw nope. didn't like Tom Cruise even back then Nope me
0: neither rocky 5 no no you never saw I that? saw the original rocky and that was it
1: king of new york ah uh, with you know who's in that what's his name oh I yeah what's have his a name fever. For <laughs> Cow christopher Christopher yeah Mermaids, I remember that. I yeah, I liked that. that. I liked that. That a good movie. With Winona Ryder, Cher yeah, and. And was Christina Ritchie? The Handmaid's Tale, the movie Have with Elizabeth M- uh, Montgomery? No,
0: McGovern. <laughs> Not, right. was she
1: the one in Ragtime? Yeah, she's in Downton, Downton Abbey. Abbey. Yeah,
0: she was in it. And Ordinary People. Oh yes, she was, she in, was in that. Yeah,
1: it wasn't bad. I just saw it recently because I had never seen it. It was probably about four years ago because I was running a lot of DVDs at the time, and I liked it. It was fairly true to the book. I haven't watched the Hulu. What movie one. are we talking? About? Handmade style.
0: <laughs> Three Men and a Little Lady. Did not see. Oh,
1: really? You didn't I did see? I did
0: see Three Men and a Baby. There's one I know that was one of my favorite movies of that year that you haven't read yet. Well, and I don't know I if it's mean, on your list. What the hell do you want from me? I don't know. Can I say it? Yes. Avalon. It's
1: oh, Barry I love Levinson that movie. movie. And I saw it with Liz,
0: our sister Liz. I don't know if it was when she was still living in Ithaca or when she was at, teaching at Michigan State but we saw it in the theater and the ending it's one of those endings where it it's hard to describe oh, yeah, but this guy behind us who was there with his girlfriend was just sobbing
1: Aww. At the oh yeah. yeah i liked
0: i went to it's see the show it's it very moving Joe. It's a family, so, Barry Levinson did a lot of those Baltimore, movies about Baltimore, like he did the one with Steve Kupberg, um, <laughs> Diner, <laughs> <Steve> <laughs> where he made the girl take the, his fiancée do the, take that quiz about the Baltimore Colts.
1: Oh, I before. don't remember <laughs> that, I just remember that What's-His-Name was in it with the popcorn and his penis was in the popcorn box.
0: Right. <laughs> but that didn't happen
1: in Avalon. Oh,
0: Avalon was a movie about several generations of family. It was it was just really good. It makes me want to look for it now and go yes. watch it.
1: It was good, but I'm not in the mood for that anymore. I want true crime. Betsy's Wedding with Alan. Well, Alda. here's a true that crime. That was an annoying one. Here's, I saw that. It's one. not
0: true crime, but here's a movie that came out that year The Craze, based on two brothers in England who were killers. If I remember right, there was a documentary about them, but I'm pretty sure it was a a regular movie, not a documentary.
1: Oh, you know what one came out I went to see? The one that I kind of like was Pacific Heights with um, Melanie Griffith and I think it was Matthew Maldine. They bought this house together and it was like a triple... Decker in uh, San Francisco and they're going to be landlords and live in it and they're fixing it up. So Michael Keaton moves in and seems fine. And then he turns out to be this fucking psycho weirdo oh, that I won't move that. out. Yeah. It's oh, I good. That rings a bell. And the thing that's funny is they're both showing the apartments and stuff and this black guy comes And talks to Melanie Griffith, and she really likes him, and she's like, okay, I'll probably, I got to talk to, you know, my partner, because they're not married. But back in 1990, that was kind of a cool thing, like living together. And he's like, okay. And then the stupid boyfriend is showing the apartment, and Michael Keaton is like, well, I've got this cash right now, and shows him all this cash. And so he just gives him the apartment, and then the black guy is pissed. Because he thought he had it. And then it turns out when he starts doing all the shit, guess who's the cop that comes? The black the black eye. guy. And mm. he's all like, Fuck yeah Spoiler alert. Anyways. Joe versus the Volcano I saw that. I like Tom that. Hanks. That was before I started hating Meg Tom Hanks. Ryan. Poor Meg Ryan. She's had too many, too much plastic surgery oh, now. What the God. fuck, women? Come on, don't do that. She was cute before. Well, they try to. You can't keep it. You just gotta age. Oh. I mean, yeah, it sucks, but oh, oh, look who's talking too, with John Travolta and Christy nope. Alley. I saw the first one again. As I said, nah. we used to didn't have anything to do on dates, nah. so we'd go mm. to the movies, then probably, you know... Fight.
0: It's true. Postcards from the Edge. Yeah, that was good. I, liked that. I like Carrie that. Carrie Fisher right. and Debbie Reynolds. Well, Talk actually, Carrie Fisher women. wasn't in it. Meryl Streep was in it, right? Yes, it was by... It was, it was par- by... Uh, that Fisher's was a good book. movie. That was one of my favorite movies of that year. Quigley
1: Down Under. You liked Tom Selleck, remember? Tom Selleck was in it.
0: I liked him on Magnum P.I., but, you know, he wasn't a major... Like reversal of fortune, Jeremy Irons. Oh, the about, about the Bülow. Yes, I saw that. Clavambulo. And
1: I, I was thinking about like. Yeah, do we that. should do that on one of our episodes. Rock and Roll High School forever with Corey Feldman. I feel bad for Corey Feldman. Yeah. He's been in the news. That whole Me Too thing. I
0: know he
1: was abused. He was.
0: He was. He was going to And I have no me. doubt he was. Speaking of Stephen King. Okay, so
1: I liked this movie, Romeo, Juliet. This, oh, I'm sorry, Shakespeare with cats? Is that the one I've been looking for? There was the Shakespeare, like somebody made this movie. It was Romeo and Juliet, but it was all cats. I and I've never been looking heard for it for ages. What do you
0: mean you've been looking for it?
1: Because I saw a clip of it once and Can't I wanted to find see it. you just find it? On the I've been looking. Lab? No. Okay. Anyways, we can. You can cut that out.
0: I'm not going to cut that out.
1: Um, Richard Dreyfus. He was one of your oh, favorites back in the day.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's also that kill. movie. That movie. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. The one no, whose life, life that is in this. And I went, like, oh shit. That killed Richard Dreyfus for me right there. Short
1: time with Dabney Coleman and Terry Gar. I like, I like Dabney, Dabney Coleman. Coleman.
0: Buffalo Bill. Yeah,
1: Shrek. Shrek was
0: 1990? Did not
1: see it. I saw it much, much later. Now, these are two that I did not see but sound interesting. Slumber Party Massacre 3 (laughs) and Sorority House Massacre 2.
0: (laughs) Wow. It, It sounds like there may be some similar stuff in those. Yeah. Stanley and Iris, James a Robert
1: De Niro. I Marcus saw that Clinton, one. Then
0: swoozy Kurtz. He was. I think Robert De Niro was an illiterate guy, and she was teaching him to read. Ugh, God. I went through a long Robert De Niro phase. I like Robert De Niro. One of the best movies. One of the best movies. Him and Charles Grodin in <gasps> Midnight. Oh, Midnight Run. Run. I like that
1: movie. State of Grace. Sean Penn, Ed Harris, Gary Oldman, Robin Wright. I think I saw that. Oh, I think that's probably where Sean, Sean Penn, Penn and was... Robin Wright got together. If that didn't end well, did it? You know, I wonder if he fooled around on. Oh, I'm uh, sure he on did. Charlize Theron. because oh. why did they suddenly break up? Like he probably fooled around like with, with everybody. Yeah. Sean
0: Penn. There was a lot of movies we saw in 1999.
1: Ones that stand out to me would be Miller's Crossing and The Grifters. Even though that makes me sound kind of pretentious, but I liked both of those. That's okay.
0: I, Those are ones I
1: would watch again and enjoy. I
0: would say Avalon stands out yes, because I just was have a such one. a vivid memory of seeing it and liking it. Goodfellas because I liked it at the time.
1: Yeah, I like too much of a
0: thing. I like Miller's Crossing and Pretty Woman stands out because I hated it at the time. I hated the concept. I nah, hate the fact that I never people think it. it's so great, and every time somebody references it as being a romantic movie, it makes me want to puke. Miller's Crossing, it's interesting.
1: Goodfellas and Miller's Crossing, I saw both of them. As far as a mob movie, I liked Miller's Crossing much better.
0: I liked Goodfellas because I felt... It was for a mob movie. The characters were more in depth. They weren't cliches. Yes, I liked Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta. I just get sick of them. I did get i I do get sick of the glorification of the mob and the assumption that all Italians are in the mob. The mobization of culture and people thinking it's this cool thing and they all want to be in the mob. So I lost interest. And the good feelings I had about Goodfellas didn't last, <laughs> and not because of anything the movie did, but just because of cultural reasons. Yes, I understand. Yeah, and it, Postcards from the Edge, I just thought was great. I don't know if one I of the ever things I remember it. is a guy brought it up with Meryl her, Street. and she said to, and she said, was crying to Debbie Reynolds, and she goes, but he told me he loved me," and Debbie Reynolds said, "They all say that, then they come." <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember who I was seeing with it, one of my girlfriends, and we just laughed and laughed. Yeah. Uh,
1: as i was telling you earlier when i was at work today i was looking up on the computer these Mm -hmm. movies
0: busy day at work huh it was actually busy (laughs) yes i'm sorry then i slowed down because people watching i'm sorry i'm sorry that i but But um, i'm protracting this
1: conversation but i realized my coworker wasn't even born when these movies came out Mm -hmm. and i was talking about them as if she would remember them no. and she was just like oh, I think I've seen that she was trying to be polite but in reality she was thinking lady Sh- you're
0: fucking old God, are you old it's like some old, old geezer bitch. talking about <laughs> seeing Frank Sinatra on the radio or something <laughs> <laughs> stupid old crone <laughs> <laughs> but Anyways, anyway I think I'm. It's, very- it's getting late and I have a long drive home just so I can turn around early tomorrow morning and drive back yeah at least you have a job yeah I know I shouldn't complain should and I? at
1: least you have a car and at least you A house to go into. Yeah.
0: And that was (laughs) right on the edge. That's a story for another day,
1: isn't it? At least your house is not the only living thing in your house is your cat right now, maybe. But, I mean, there's no other human. There could be other living things. But there there isn't a person there.
0: Except for me. You're the only person. But in any case, thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And listen to us however you want to listen to us. Or just look up crime and stuff. And if you can rate and review wherever you listen. And like Jill Ingraham from Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. Point me. I remember sing per- per- and per- upset family. In the her. direction no. of... Al- I know, she just turned it off. You can donate. It helps us uh, rent our space and pay, pay blueberry and, and stuff um, like that. And thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Abeth, now 52 and living in Vermont. Oh, it's the same age as me. Mm-hmm. Has been consistent... Wait, Wait, he wouldn't be
1: 52. My math is off. He'd be, because I was 25 and that was. Yeah,
0: yeah. And he was 20, 23 in 1990. That's 27
1: years ago. Okay. Yeah.
0: So is he 52?
1: No. He's like. 50. Wait. Oh, Jesus. I was 25 in so, 1990. 19, so. so he was
0: born in 1967. So
1: he wouldn't be 52. He'd so be he'd 50. be 50. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah, don't lean on the table. But I like to. I know you do, but it takes me longer to edit. Okay. You know, when you edit them, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs>